Good morning again. How is everyone doing? If you don't have the message outline, could please get that. It's right out there, the center doors at the ministry counter. It'll help you follow along in the message this morning. We're going to continue in our series called Beginnings. We've been going through the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Many people say if you, if you get the first three chapters, the rest of the Bible's easy, right, to, to listen and understand it. When you look at this passage this morning, when you've you got to ask yourself a couple of questions. Why and then what? There, there is a curse that we're going to talk about this morning, and we, we're going to talk about the what today, but you have to ask why. Why would God do it that way? Why would he do that? Because as a result, the change of lives of everyone who has ever been born on this face of this earth. Why? Why is there a curse? Why would there have to be? We're, we're going to look at it a little bit. We're going to answer the question, what? If I forget to come back to the why, you're going to remind me, right? You remind me to come to the why. We're coming at, at the end. We're going to look at the what today. So if you find Genesis chapter 3, and, and let me give you a little background. God created this beautiful heaven and earth, and he said it was good. It was good. It was good. Everything you see in the sky, God created that. And he said it was good. It was good. And he came to the sixth day, and he created man, and he said it was what? Very good. It just wasn't good. It was very good when he created man. The pinnacle of his creation was you and I when he created us the pinnacle of his creation. He created us, but then he said it was not good for man to be alone, so he created woman. He created Eve, and they had this wonderful relationship in the garden as husband and wife, as man and woman, and God would meet them in the cool of the day, and they would look forward to that. It was an exciting time, but then in the meantime, the wicked one, taken on the form of a serpent, he was tempting Eve, and the wicked one said, did God really say that? Did he really say that? And Eve believed in the deception, and she took from the fruit, and she gave some to her husband who willfully disobeyed God. Adam willfully disobeyed God. And you look and you say, what's the big deal? It's just a piece of fruit, right? What's the big deal of them taking a piece of fruit? The big deal is that was rebellion against God. In them taking the fruit, they were saying they wanted to be as God. That's what they want to do. To understand good from evil. I want to be as God. And so this was a huge deal. And we look at this passage today, and God comes to meet with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and they're hiding. So God asks the question. He's asking him a question. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? Don't you find in the Bible God loves to ask questions in the Bible that he already knows the answers? He already knows what he's going to do. We talked about that last week. But he's asking questions to try, try to move us along in our lives from doubt and denial and then from shame and guilt to finally the confession, forgiveness, and finally restoration. And it's wonderful. But that's what God does in our lives. That's what he's trying to do in our lives, to bring us to restoration, to be restored back to him. And God says, where are you, Adam? And Adam said, I was hiding because I was naked. And what does God say? God says, who told you that you were naked? And never, Adam never answered that question. And God asked, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to, to not to eat from? He already knew what they did. And so Adam's classic answer is this. The woman you put here with me, she's the one that gave me the fruit, and so I ate it. So he's casting the blame, blame shifting on her. That's the reason I ate it. So now God turns to cross-examination of Eve. And we went over this all last week. He said, Eve, did you take from the fruit? And what did she say? The serpent deceived me. It's all his fault, right? So we see in this passage, you've got this denial. All this, what they're doing, they're kind of blame shifting, blaming everyone else except themselves. So how is God going to respond to this? What is God going to do? And we find in this passage today, there are some devastating effects because of the fall in the garden. 
And we're going to look at three of those this morning. So if you have your outlines, the devastating effects of the fall. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this, he said this, that God said to Adam and Eve, okay, now you live in a broken world and destroyed world. You can't escape from it. You're going to live in it, and you're going to live in between the curse and the promise. Between the curse and the promise. A devastating world. Devastating, first of all, because of the rebellion. If you have your outlines, the first devastating effect of, of the fall, rebellion destroys your identity. It destroys your identity, who God made you to be. And so you have to surrender to restore that identity. So we're going to pick up at verse 14. But before we get there, let me tell you a little bit of what's going to happen here. Uh, he's going to pronounce judgment first upon, we're going to see in verse 14, the serpent. By the serpent, I mean the animal itself. And then he's going to pronounce judgment on Satan. And then he's going to come then to Eve, pronounce uh, judgment on her, uh, on what she did. Because of her actions, there's consequences. And finally, he's going to come to Adam and pronounce it upon Adam. But first, we're going to look at the serpent. We're going to look at the animal in verse 14. So everybody have Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. So he says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. The logic of that verse would have us to believe that prior to this, that serpents or, or snakes, we all know them of traveling on the ground or maybe up the tree, they're, but they're always on their belly. We know them, right? The, the snakes, we know that. Well, logic would lead us to believe that prior to this, that serpents or snakes had a way of getting around other than that than on their belly. That's what it's, logic would believe us to say that. So some would suggest that they had legs at some time before the fall where they could walk but now they're on the bellies. That's the curse on the serpent that we have. How many of you like snakes? Nobody likes snakes in here. That's kind of surprising. Nobody likes snakes. Most people don't like snakes. That little slithering is kind of creepy, isn't it? Kind of slithering. So people stay away from snakes, right? But notice the second part of the curse on the snake, which is actually directed at Satan. He's talking about Satan here. God says to Satan in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman in between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, is what he says. This verse is so critical. It's so, so critical what he's saying here. And that verse is interpreted by many to be the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, is what we find here. And it comes at a time when, when, when man is devastated and without hope. And God is saying, there's going to be a curse on you, Satan, for what you've done. It's going to be a curse. And it's going to be a war. You're going to be at war with woman, with all of humanity, with all of us, that Satan is at war with us. And he says, Satan and his offspring and the woman and her offspring. Let's look at Satan and his offspring. Who, who, who is that? Well, of course it would be Satan, the devil, the evil one, the wicked one, whatever you want to call him, Lucifer, the Satan. And then it would also be demons. Demons are fallen angels that were, that were angels that were created by God, that rebelled against God, uh, along with Lucifer, and they're fallen, right? They're fallen angels, what we call them. They're called demons. According to Isaiah chapter 14, and Ezekiel chapter 28, and Revelation chapter 12, when Lucifer, was, was Satan, fell, he took one-third of the angels from heaven with him who rebelled against God, and they fell. Now they're causing all kinds of difficulty here on this earth today is what they're doing. So we have Satan and his demonic creatures, right? We have that. But the Bible also lets us know that it might be go, go beyond that. In John chapter 8, uh, Jesus points to a group of people that are, that are antagonistic toward him. And he says to them, your father, the devil, he says to them. 
So it could be even human beings that are offspring of Satan who are bent on doing Satan's work. Human beings that are bent on doing his work. So we have Satan's offspring would include who? Satan, demons, which are fallen angels that were created by God. And we also have human beings that might be bent on doing Satan's work. That's the offspring of Satan that we have in the world today. And in contrast, you have the, the woman, the woman and her offspring. And that would include who? The woman is Eve they're talking about. And her offspring, which starts with Cain and Abel, and then other children that she had, and then generation after generation after generation after generation, and millions and millions of people are the offspring of Eve. It's humanity. It's the human race. They all come from Eve. And some say Mother Eve, so to say. They all came from her. But there's one that comes from her offspring that would give us hope. And it's talked about him in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, this genealogy that traces Jesus all the way from Eve, that Jesus was just not a human being like you and I, but Jesus was the God-man. He was different. 100% God and 100% human was Jesus. But he was part of the woman of seed is what the Bible says. So it says there's going to be an enmity or there's going to be a conflict. There's going to be a war that's going on between the forces of evil and against all humanity is what it's saying. All of us. And we, we see that in different ways every single day in our lives, don't we? We see that happening, that this animosity where Satan just wants to destroy people. You see it happen in cities, people are murdering one another and killing one another. We see it with human beings, he's trying to destroy human endeavors and that kind of thing. He wants to destroy families, and I want you to understand this, and I want to emphasize this. We have this picture, and the enemy wants us to have this picture, that Satan's this little red suit, little mischief, just wants to get a little mischief because he wants to have fun. That's not the picture the Bible gives. Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to rip your families apart. He wants to separate moms and dads, and he wants to separate your children from you by doing isolation. Isolate your children from their parents. That's what he does. He does it very subtly. He doesn't come and say, follow me, Satan, because we'd run from him. But he's very good at what he does, and he does it very subtle, brings things that cause division between mom and dad and between parents and their children because he loves isolation. When he can get you isolated away from everyone else, that's when he works on your hearts and your minds and starts having you to doubt God and his word. And he's very good at that, very subtly. We don't even realize it, and he's doing that. So we have to be, be, be understand, we are at war with Satan. There's a conflict. He wants to destroy us, make no bones about it. But if we look at the last part of this, verse 15, it gives us great hope. Great hope that God didn't leave us down here and Satan could do whatever he wants. In verse 15, it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That God is speaking to Satan here and he's telling this to Satan. And by the way, when you look at this passage, who's in control? God, he's the one laying out the curse. He's the one saying, this is what's going to happen. And no one can say anything back to him. This is what's going to happen and no one's going to stop it is what God is saying. This is what's going to happen. But he said, he, meaning the offspring, who do you think that might be referring to? He and the offspring of the woman. Many believe, and I believe, that it means Jesus, that offspring is Jesus, that he will crush your head is what the Bible says. And there's no other offspring of the woman that can do that, only Jesus. So he, Jesus, will crush your head, means Jesus will take a, a smash of a deadly blow to the, to, to the head of Satan is what it's talking about. That he's going to crush his head. But it goes on to say, and you will strike his heel, that Satan will strike his heel, strike Jesus' heel. And ever since the time that Jesus came to this earth, we've kind of seen this, this wicked one has been at work trying to do this. Uh, remember in using Herod, when we read that in the book of 
Luke, if you know anything about the book of Luke, uh, the book of Revelation gives us the interpretation and identifies who that is. When Herod says, I want to kill all the babies, when Jesus is to be born, I want to kill all the babies that are two years old and younger. In that whole region, I want to put them to death. Where do you think that came from? It wasn't Herod. It was the wicked one. Revelation chapter 12 lets us know that. It was the wicked one which was behind that. He wanted that to happen. And when Jesus was driven by the Spirit uh, out into the wilderness, out in the desert, in Matthew chapter 4, and, and, Satan was, and, and Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan was doing everything he could to tempt Jesus, to get Jesus to fall into that temptation. Because if he did that, it would eliminate Jesus, therefore being the Redeemer of the world. Because unless he was a spotless Lamb of God, dying on the cross would be meaningless. The only way that Jesus' death would have any meaning would have to be the spotless Lamb of God. Be sinless. And if he could get Jesus to fall into temptation, he would eliminate what Jesus could do. But he could not do that, could he? And so there's this war going on. And I think this happened ultimately at the cross, that Jesus saw on the cross, where at the cross the victory of Jesus was determined, the Bible tells us. He crushed the head of the wicked one. The wicked one is still alive, he's still living, but the sentence was marked on that day. That day he was marked, and victory was determined, and Jesus was victorious on that day. And if you read in the book of Revelations, chapters 20 through 22, it, said, it says Satan one day will be thrown into a bottomless pit for a thousand years, and after that, he will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever, forevermore. But it all started at the cross. It all started at the cross of Jesus, where Jesus was victorious, and Satan's time is limited. And he's already been sentenced that he's going to be thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and into that lake of fire. But it was at the cross, the Bible says also, where the heel of Jesus was bruised as well. Okay? So that's a curse on the serpent, and that's a curse on Satan. You follow me so far? Okay, what about Eve? Let's look what God says about Eve in verse 16. He says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. So women, you can't blame your husbands for this. You can't blame them. This all, all Eve, it all goes back to Eve. Pain during childbirth, it's all her, her fault. It's part of the curse of Eve. It goes all the way back into the garden, right, what she did. The curse goes back at that time. So you probably think, boy, wouldn't it have been nice to give, well, I wouldn't know, but you would know, ladies would know, to give birth to children that have any pain. Can you imagine that? But it goes all back to Eve. But the second part of it is in the second part of verse 16. We don't want to miss that. It's real important. It says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What does that mean? Your desire will be for your husband. It sounds really good, right? It doesn't sound bad at all. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says your desire shall be contrary to your husband. It's probably a better rendering. It, either one of those can be used in he he the Hebrew, but that's probably a better rendering, the second one. That your desire should be contrary to your husband. Where other translations say against your husband. Probably a better translation, too. It, that's kind of contrary. What is happening that, that they once were in the garden, they had this wonderful, amazing relationship, equal, mutual relationship that was going on where they were connected, they satisfied each other, they, they had, it was fulfilling, it was mutually beneficial. And then sin came into the world and it changed everything and it messed up the relationship. She has a desire not as, now that is contrary to her husband, and her husband has a desire to rule over her is what we see. 
So there's this conflict going on. There's this tension constantly going on, the Bible says, that we see this. And that's what we see part of the curse. And this not only is happening in the marriage of Adam and Eve, but it's happening in the marriages today, right? We just don't automatically connect, right? Can I get an amen? Okay, we have that. I thought he was going to be the only one up here. That we all agree with that because we don't automatically say our wedding vows and there's no conflict. There's no arguments, right? That doesn't happen, right? Because there's conflict. And that's part of the curse, is the Bible saying. That's part of it. She wants what's contrary to the husband. Husband wants to rule over. So there's this tension and there's conflict. When you put two people that are sinners, the hearts are, when you have two people that aren't perfect together, there's going to be this tension and conflict, and that's what we have. But, but we, we can work on that, and we need to work on that. In, in Jesus, we have much greater hope to have the marriages that God intends us to have, right? In Christ, we can find that. As we both submit to Jesus, the man and woman submit to Jesus, become all we need to be in that marriage. Uh, now let's look at the man. What does God say to the man in verse 17 through 19? To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And he says, Adam, you and Eve rose up to be as God. Now all of creation is rising up against you, is what he's saying. And he says, you're going to fight thorns and thistles. He says, all the days of your life, it's going to be like that for you. Until... You came from the dust, the dust you will return, is what he's saying. Until that time, you're always going to have that. You're always going to have this in here, and that's part of the curse on man. And that's, that's, this, that's the what. The fall destroyed our identity, is what we find out. It destroyed our identity. And, and if prior to the fall, if Eve would have asked Adam, said, Adam, who are you? Adam would have said, who I am? I'm made in the image of God. And God has placed me and you here, Eve, on this earth to be his representatives, his salim, made in this image to be his representative. That's who we are. And if Adam would ask Eve, Eve, who are you? She would have said, I'm made in the image of God, diddle just like you, to bring him glory, to represent God. And that's what they were here, and they, were, they understood who they were. But then the fall came, and our identity now was forfeited. And ever since that day, men and women born on this earth, they struggled to answer the identity question. Who am I? And if you look at our culture today, we struggle with that. Who am I? And wh what am I doing here? We're asking all those questions. Let me share some of the ways that we cope with that today and try to identify ourselves. In that day of Adam and Eve, I want to remind you, if you asked them who their identity was, what would they say? I'm made in the image of God, right? That was their identity. They understood it because we're all made in the image of God, but we, we kind of lost that, and they forgot that. But they knew who they were until the fall. And when, when the fall happened, it kind of marred that kind of destroyed it in a way, but it more marred that. And maybe they're struggling. People are just struggling today with their identity. They don't know who they are. You ask many people, they have no idea who they are. And that's part of the problem in our society today. And he, we're, how are we going to handle that? Well, let me give you some ways that people try to identify themselves, so maybe you can relate to that. Some identify themselves based on race, where they say, I'm a black man, I'm a white woman, I'm Hispanic, whatever. And they look at this, and they try to answer all of life's questions through their identity based on race is what they're trying to do is through race. And that's one of the difficulties we have in our society today. 
because everyone's trying to answer all their questions based on race. And when they're doing that, no one's trying to find commonality. They're all trying to do it through race. And no one is coming united together, and it divides us. The more we do that, the more we get divided because we're not finding commonality amongst one another because we're trying to find our identity through our race. And we're never going to find that. We're never going to find it. Others, some do it based on, and it's really popular today, based on their gender. Some will say I'm a woman, some will say I'm a man, or whatever gender that's out there. And they look at life all through that lens, trying to find who I am through their gender. And people are struggling to find who they are and understand their identity through their gender. gender. And they're trying to answer all of the major questions of life through their gender. And they're never going to find it. They're never going to find that meaning and purpose they're, they're looking for through their gender. You're not supposed to find it through that. That's not what we're supposed to find. I know a lot of people try to find their identity based on their job. And they say, I'm an engineer, I'm a plumber, I'm a teacher, I'm a nurse. And I've been doing this for 40 years. So, so what we do becomes what we are, right? That's what I am. I'm a teacher, whatever, whatever you say. The problem with that, there's lots of problems with that, but the problem with that is when we can no longer do what we do. Then we're no longer that. And we kind of, that's when we have an identity crisis. Because I don't know who I am now. I've retired from that. I'm no longer being that teacher. I'm no longer being that nurse. I'm no longer being that engineer. So now I'm struggling with my identity. Who am I? And we're struggling with that. We see that a lot in our society where people are struggling with that. Men particularly just uh, have that problem when they retire because they've identified themselves for so long as what they do on their occupation, for their vocation rather, and now all of a sudden, who am I? And they don't have any idea who they are. And you find some people identify themselves based on abuse. And it's sad when you see this, when a sin of another person defines who you are, but you find it in our society quite a bit. If people struggle and they say, you know, I was abused as a child, and now that's kind of stamped on them. And they have that on them, and it's hard to shake that. Especially it's reminded them where that one that abused them is still showing up at family get-togethers and family reunions to remind them of the pain and, and that identity is devastating. And sometimes it follows them all through their life that that identity has been stepped up, stamped on them. I've met people who identify themselves say that I'm the son of Jack and Jack is their father. And that's how they identify themselves. And they say, yeah, I'm the son of Jack or whatever their father's name is. And the problem with that, that they can never live up to Jack's standards is usually what happens when they identify themselves with that. And even uh, they can never live up their dad's approval, their Jack's approval. And, and even when their father dies, they struggle with their identity because they didn't live up their parents' approval, didn't meet up to the parents' expectations in their life. So they struggle with it. They struggle with it, their identity, to find out who they are. You have some people identify themselves through their addiction. And they actually introduce themselves that way. Hello, I'm Tom. I'm an alcoholic. And that's their identity. And they accept that. And that's how they are. And this is all because of the fall. All because of the fall. And I can illustrate this in so many different ways. But I think you get what I'm talking about, right? You understand what I'm saying. And you see that in our society. Ask people. And they're telling you. They kind of identify. What they talk about the most, that's their identity. That's how they identify themselves. But you think, you think and you look at this, you say, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope that we can have? That's because of the fall, our identity now has been kind of stamped on us. And that's who we are. And we don't like this identity. Is there any hope that we can shake that identity and find something more important, something more deeper, on a deeper level, something that's more meaningful? Is that what you're asking? I'm glad you asked that question because there is. There is. That once we come to know Jesus, once we've come to put our faith and trust in Jesus, and trust in him and our Savior, Jesus becomes our identity. That's who we are. We're in Christ. Amen? 
we're still a man, we're still a woman, we still have at our job as a, as a plumber, whatever it is we do, we still have our race, we maybe even perhaps still even have our addiction, but those are sub-identifiers now with us. But we're identified, our faith in Jesus is what identifies us, that's who we are, that we are in Christ, or our identity now is in Jesus, amen, it's in Jesus. When you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're now a follower of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit now lives inside of you. And are, are you still a man or woman? Are you, you're not too confident in that. You're still a man or woman? <laughs> yes, screaming out, yes, you're still a man or woman. Are you still a plumber or electrician? Yes, but those are not what defines us. What defines us is who? Jesus. Jesus defines us. That's our identity. So my question to you this morning is, what is your identity? Who defines you this morning? What is it? Is it Jesus? He's the only one that can give you meaning and purpose. He's the only one that can answer the major questions of life. None of those others can do that. Your addiction can't do that. Your, 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 thing, your vocation, your job cannot do that. Your gender cannot do that. Any of those things can't answer the major questions. They can't give you meaning and purpose. The only one that can do that, give you meaning and purpose, and answer all the major questions of life is the only one. It's Jesus. There's only one at eternal that can guarantee those. It's Jesus. None of those other things are. It's only Jesus. So let's talk about the two other major devastations of the fall. The second devastation of the fall, if you have your outline, rebellion creates collateral damage. Collateral damage. Therefore, we need to hate sin. We need to hate sin because it creates collateral damage. By collateral damage, there were two people in the garden, wasn't there? There was Adam and Eve, and they disobeyed God, and it led to an insurrection against God. But it wasn't just those two people, because it affected their children, and their children, and their children, and it affected you and me centuries later. The ripple effect of sin is catastrophic, is it not? It's catastrophic. And so is your sin. So is your sin when you sin. When the enemy, the wicked one, Satan, comes and he tempts us, and he tells us, go ahead and do it. We're enticed by the sin that you deserve it. Go ahead and do it. We fall into that temptation. It affects other people. And I feel the weight of that every day. And I'll use myself as an illustration. That if I would sin in such a way that would damage my wife, my children, or my grandchildren, who right now thinks that her and I are pretty great, that changes everything. Not only does it change their opinion about us, but it, I've just given them an excuse for their own disobedience, haven't I? And, and, and the ripple effect continues and gets broader and broader and broader and affects more people. And I think for a church family here, that if you go to work and somebody says, uh, don't you go to Crossroads? Was your pastor the one that did that? And you can't defend me. The ripple effect of sin, it wasn't what it does to other people. And I illustrated with me, but I can use each one of you as an illustration, couldn't I? The ripple effect of sin, what it does in our lives. That's what our sin does, how it affects other people. But the enemy, he'll come and say, go ahead and do it. It's not going to hurt anybody. What they don't know, go ahead and do it. It's not going to bother anybody. And you deserve to do this. But we need to look at the effect of that ripple that happens, not only in our life, what it's going to do to other people, to the people that you love and that you care about in your community, in your sphere of influence, that when you sin, there's going to be a consequence. And it's going to hurt other ones around you. We need to look at that. And so we need to hate sin the way that God hates sin because God knows that when you and I sin, 
the ripple effect. It just starts, and it starts hurting all those around us. The ones we care the most about, it starts hurting them. And he knows that. So he says, I hate it. Don't do it. And we need to hate sin like God hates sin, right? Amen? So we need to make that commitment. I hate sin like God hates it. Doesn't mean, guys, that we won't sin again, but I hate it because I know what it does. It hurts not only me, but it hurts others. The third devastating effect of the fall, rebellion ravages the earth. Therefore, let's hope in God's ultimate restoration. That's what God wants to do. We're going to continue all of our lives, the, the lives that we live, to beat back the weeds and to kind of take those thorns and thistles out of our clothes and, and out of our flesh. That, that's part of the curse is what the Bible says. We're going to continue that. We're not going to get away from that in this side of eternity. And what we're going to do as much as we can to reverse that, to make this world a better place in every way we can. And that's part of God's job as well. God wants to restore. That's what he wants to do, restore. And in between the curse and the promise, God hasn't given up on us. I don't want you to think he has. He's not given up on us. In fact, the emphasis of his is on people. Rather than just waiting for people to die and from dust to dust to ashes to ashes, God sent Jesus into the world. And we should be thrilled about that because that gives us hope. He sent Jesus in the world to rescue mankind, to, to crush the head of the wicked one, of Satan, to, to bring restoration to identity, give us our identity back, and also to bring a change of eternal address for everyone who put their faith and trust in Jesus. For all those who believe in Jesus, said, I want to give you an eternal address. And that address is in heaven with God, with Jesus forever. And he says to every one of us that know Jesus Christ our Savior, that are caught between the curse and the promise, and wondering how we're going to travel this world with, with all the, the pain and all the uncertainty. And God says, I, I'd like to help you with that because now you are my children. Because now you're identified by me and you're ambassadors for me. And I want you to go in this world and I want you to be salt and light in the world and I want you to show the love of Jesus to everyone so that their identity can be changed and restored, so that their sins can be forgiven, so their destination can be heaven is what God wants for us. And all that's accomplished through who? Jesus. So he says, I want you to go out there and be my representative. I want you to go out there and share the love of Jesus with everyone. He says, because they need to have that identity that's in Jesus. They need to have their sins forgiven that's in Jesus. They need to have their eternal destination be heaven that's through Jesus. Amen? And that's what he's saying. So when we look at this, there's a ripple effect of sin. We all admit that, right? But isn't there a ripple effect of grace? And God wants us to be the ripple. He wants us to create the ripple by showing the love of Jesus to others, by sharing the gospel message that they can have their identity restored. And it's in Jesus. It's in Jesus that God wants us to understand our identity. It's not about these temporary things on earth, but it's about eternal person. It's about meaning and purpose and understanding why I'm here and what the reason I'm here. And God wants us to understand that in our lives. Let me give you two ways to apply this, and it's going to affect everyone in this room. The first way, if you don't, if you don't have an identity yet, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you, you don't identify with Christ, then you're not ready for the rest of life. And you're certainly not ready for eternity, right? And, and we may be good people. We may wash ourselves as good as we can, you know, with soap and everything, but we're never going to make ourselves clean enough for the justice of God. But we don't have to. Because Jesus did it for us. He died for us. So what are we waiting for? Every week I stand up here and I share with you to put your faith and trust in Jesus, to trust him as your Savior. So what are you waiting for? Do you not realize that Jesus loves you? 
that God loves you so much that he sent his son from heaven to earth. Because you and I were stuck in a place, we were sinners. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner. And because of our sin, we're separated from God. And there's no way I can approach a holy, just, perfect God because he's holy and just, and I'm not. I'm a sinner. So there's separation. And there's nothing I can do to bridge that gap. There's nothing I can do to approach God. And so God sent his son, Jesus, because he loved us so much, into this world. Who's God? And he took on the form of a man. He came as a baby. He took on the form of humanity. 100% God, 100% human. And then he grew up to be a man. And then he went to the cross. And God placed all of your sins, my sins, the sins of the whole world, but we're talking about your sins. He placed them upon Jesus. All those things that you've done that you don't want anybody to know. All those things that you've stuffed away and say, I don't want anybody to know because they're so embarrassing. All those thoughts that you've had that are wrong. All those motives that you've done. All those words that you said that are wrong. They were placed upon Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross and paid the complete penalty payment for your sins. He was your substitute. That's the grace of God. Jesus died for you and paid for all your past, present, and future sins. They're all paid for. All the sins you will ever commit, no matter how great they are, no matter what you've done, Jesus Christ paid for them upon the cross. Amen? He did that. But now, he says, this is the free gift of salvation. It's free to everyone. But we have to come to God his way. And there's only one way to come to God, the way that God has provided. And he's provided one way. And who's that through? It's through Jesus. Jesus died for you on the cross. He paid for your sins. So God says, I provided the way, only way to get to God is through Jesus. So you and I have to come now and put our faith and trust in Jesus. The Bible said, it's for by grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus. And it's just to come and say, I know I'm a sinner. And to realize two things about Jesus, and it's real important. That Jesus is the Son of God, that He's God, and that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and is buried and raised on the third day. And Him dying, He died for your sins. And now you come and you say, God, I know I'm a sinner, and I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and today I put my faith and my trust in Him. If you've never done that, please do that today. Make Jesus your identity so you can have forgiveness of sins, and you can also have an eternity with Him. Your eternal address changes the moment that you do that. If you still have questions about that, please come and see me, because that's, that question is all about eternity, where you will spend eternity, with Jesus or with not. So please put your faith and trust in him. Secondly, maybe for the rest of us, you are caught between the curse and the promise. And some days are good, and some days are bad. Some days you understand what is going on. Some days you kind of scratch your head, what is happening in this world, right? And some days you, you fall into temptation, you confess it, and God forgives you. What about you? What is God going to do with you? Because some days, don't you just think, you think, man, I just wish Jesus would come back. How many wish that? I just wish Jesus would come back and we all go to heaven. That would be wonderful. But until that time, may I encourage you, submit to the Spirit of God in your life. Just submit to the Holy Spirit in your life. Submit to Him. And don't try to battle the flesh on your own. Don't try to battle this world on your own because you will never win. You're always going to lose. You're always going to struggle with that. Don't do it. But surrender and submit to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. Do that. Here, he, he, he gives you the hope, the strength that you need to get through this life. But we have to yield to him, right? We have to submit to Jesus, live for him. That's what God wants us to do, is to live for Jesus and submit to him. You were supposed to remind me of something. What was it? What was it? The why, the why, right? The why. Why would God, think about this. I want you to think of the bigger picture. Why would God put this paragraph in there? Why would he put this paragraph? Wouldn't it have been better 
if God would have said, wait a minute, then they made their excuses, and God comes and says, I, I realize what you've done, what you, what you try to do. You know, you, we, we, you, you sinned early on here. We're early in on this, and you wanted to be as God. That didn't work, did it? So why don't we just call a mulligan? Why don't we just do a do-over? Wouldn't that be great? Just do a do-over. Let's pretend like this never happened, and there would be no consequences. Then everything would be, it would change everything, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it change everything? But not for the better. Not for the better. Because it would have sent a message to people of all time that there's no consequences. There's no consequences for your actions. And God says from the very beginning, he repeats it, repeats it, repeats it, repeats it, repeats it. There are consequences. And we need to understand that. Whatever a man sows, shall he reap. That's the law of the harvest. Whatever you sow, whatever actions, there's going to be a harvest. And there's going to be consequence for that harvest every time. Farmers are out there and getting their crops in. They didn't sow potatoes, and now they're going to bring in soybeans, did they? They didn't sow, sow anything. That, whatever you sow is what you harvest. There have been so many times in my life that I've looked at people, and I've just wondered, hey, they just got away with something. You, you like that with me? They just got away with murder. They just got away with stealing it. They just got away with that. They lied. They got away with that. We look at that. The Bible remind, reminds us that their sins will find them out. And I always look at that verse and say, amen, their sin's going to find them out. But sooner or later, there will be consequences. But what happens if that person gets away with it? You ever think about it? And people's gotten away with it. We look on there and they get away with it. God says to us, just relax. He says, relax. He says, because vengeance is mine, said the Lord. I will repay them back. And I come to recognize that this is not my world. This is God's world. It belongs to him, not me. And he will bring justice in his time. And it may not be here on this earth. It might be in a day when they come face to face where justice will happen. So we have to leave that with God. So it's a reminder to us and to our children. There are consequences for our actions. There's always consequences. From the very beginning of time, there was consequences. And God has not changed. There will always, always be consequences for our, for our actions. We need to teach that to our children. We need to learn that as adults. But there's something better for us between the curse and the promise, and that is to live for Jesus. To live for him is what's better. Jesus is the only remedy for our sin. He's the only remedy. He's the one that gives us identity. He's the one that gives us meaning and hope. And if you don't know Jesus as your identity, if you've never put your faith and trust in him, now would be a good time to do that by simply putting your faith and trust in him. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you sin, and we all sin, we all sin. 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sin. God already knows you did it. Confess it, come to an agreement, and God will purify you with that. If, you're, if you don't know Jesus, 1 John 1, 9 doesn't apply to you. You first have to accept Jesus. That's what the believers. You need Jesus in your life to be, have forgiveness of sins. For all that you do know, accept Jesus. So wherever we're at in our life, we need Jesus. Either put your faith in him or live for him. One of the two, accept him today so we can all live for him. Amen. He's our identity, not what the world is trying to share. That's not identity. That identity is temporary and leads to confusion and struggles and, and all kinds of things. The only one that gives us true meaning and direction and guidance and hope and a true identity that lasts for all of eternity, eternity is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come and we praise you. We thank you so much, Lord, as we read in Genesis chapter 3 at the, at the fall and the curse, Lord. Now, Lord, we, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy because you didn't give up on us. 
you're going to turn your backs on and say, that's it. I created you. Now I'm going to wipe you all out because you disobeyed me. But that's not you. Your God is full of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. And there's no matter what we've done, no matter what sins we've committed, there's nothing we can do is greater than the blood of Jesus. There's nothing that we can do is greater than the grace of God, that God promises to always forgive us, always forgive us for every sin. And so, Lord, we come to, God, come to you, Lord, and in humility. We come to you, and I hope everyone can recognize in their own heart that none of us are wise. None of us are perfect. Lord, we're sinners by nature. And it's only by the grace of God that we're forgiven through Jesus Christ. It's only by his blood shed on that cross that we find forgiveness. It's only by that that we have any hope at all through Jesus. I pray that each person this morning, Lord, they find their identity in Jesus. They can absolutely say with all their heart, my identity is in Jesus. I'm in Christ. If there's someone here this morning that they don't know Jesus, that their identity, they're not sure, Lord, help them to understand this morning. Convict them of their sin and their need of Jesus. That this morning, Lord, they might put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Just simply come and say, God, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and today I receive him as my Savior. That they, too, might have their eternal address changed forever and be heaven. That they, too, might have a forgiveness of sin, and they, too, might have any, a different identity in Jesus. I pray for every one of us that know Jesus Christ as our Savior, Lord, that we'd come and we'd yield to you, to, to you we'd live for you, because that's our identity. It's in Christ. It's not in the world. It's in our, not in our vocation. It's not in our gender. It's not in any of those other things, Lord, that we, we struggle with, Lord, or our race or anything like that. It's in Jesus. That's what identifies. That's the identity that makes the difference. That's the identity for eternity. That's who we are. It's the most important that we can have, because there's no greater name than you. There's no greater person than you, God. And so, Lord, I pray for each person here that we'd, we'd leave here, Lord, understanding who we are and not be lost like most in the world are and struggle with their identity to understand who we are. We understand we are followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And we are here on this earth to be your representatives, made in the image of God, and we are in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And we are confident of our identity. And we don't want any other identity because nothing stands up to that identity. That's the greatest identity we can have, to be in Christ, followers of Jesus. And I pray that for each one. So as Lord, as we leave here today, that we leave here, Lord, with our heads up high and, and uh, knowing that our identity, and be willing to share that with others, the love of Jesus, Lord, too. Lord, as we sing this last song, Lord, that you would just minister to hearts and minds this morning. And Lord, if anybody doesn't know Jesus, Lord, I pray through this last song, might convict them that they need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And Lord, we ask this in that glorious name, that wonderful name, the name that saves, the name of Jesus.